Hello and welcome to The Premise. Bienvenidos, mi amigos. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise. So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record. <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, a shot, you know, whatever. And you do you. You do you. We'll do us. No judgment here. We'll do us. Rick Ridgway is an outdoor adventurer, writer, and advocate for sustainability and conservation initiatives. For 15 years, Rick was the VP of Environmental Affairs and then VP of Public Engagement at Patagonia, Inc. During his tenure, he has worked with teams to develop and launch environmental and sustainability initiatives, including Freedom to Roam, The Footprint Chronicles, The Responsible Economy Campaign, and Warn Wear. He also was founding chairman of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, developer of the Higindex, and today the largest apparel, footwear, and home textile trade organization in the world. In addition, Rick is recognized as one of the world's foremost mountaineers. With three companions, he was the first American to summit K2, and he has done other significant climbs and explorations on all continents. He has written seven books, many magazine stories, and produced and directed dozens of television shows. National Geographic honored him with its Lifetime Achievement and Adventure Award. In corporate sustainability, he is emeritus board member of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and on the board of its for-profit arm, Higco. In conservation, he serves on the boards of Tompkins Conservation, the Turtle Conservancy, One Earth, and the Kewitt Family Foundation. Did I say that right? Kewitt. Kewitt. Thank you. Rick lives in Ojai, California, Mm -hmm. and has three children and four grandchildren. Welcome to The Premise. Well, thank you. Now that's going to be a bit to live up to, Jennifer. <laughs> well, I think you've already done that much, Rick, so we're, we won't worry about that. It's, it's you know, I, I know it's kind of a long bio, but I wanted our listeners to understand the breadth of everything you've done and that this, we're not just speaking with an author here today, although that's certainly part of it. And we're not just talking to a mountaineer, we're, we're talking to a man who has accomplished so much, and we're going to talk about sustainability and the environment. But first, let's talk about your book. Okay. I absolutely loved this book. Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. It, it's close to my heart in a lot of ways. As our listeners already know, I am a climber myself. And so reading these stories was really special in a lot of ways. But I want to say that, you know, on the one hand, this book is about mountaineering and exploration into some of the wildest places on earth, yes. But at its core, Life Lived Wild is so much more. First of all, you're a beautiful writer. Your, your words are poetic. You write with such honesty and vulnerability and heart. And you've done something I think all writers aspire to. And that is to just tell just enough of your story without making any assumptions about your readers. You leave room for the reader to glean from your experience and take from it what he or she needs to gain their own insight and apply their own sense of meaning. Some might say lessons to their own life. And I think that there are many lessons to be learned from this book, but they aren't overt. And there's something really beautiful in that. I, I kind of think of you as a guide. Your words provide wisdom because they make you think, not because they tell you what to think. I know that was kind of long-winded, but, <laughs> but was that your intention, sort of the silent guide? Yes, uh, it, 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 it was indeed. So that was a good uh, insight that you, you know, took from dissecting that, how I might have written the book or go about writing it. But, but yes, I wanted to show instead of tell. Um, mm. I wanted to uh, Im- imply um, in, instead mm. of being overt. <clears throat> and, uh, th- and that's hard to do. Uh, yeah. But then I decided if I, in telling my stories of these adventures, um, suggest to the reader what I took from them, then in turn, they might be able to pull from them what they could apply to their own lives uh, without me having to explicitly suggest they do that or even how to do it, mm. uh, but by, by implication. Um, and 
it brought to my mind when I was thinking it through something I read about the 1930s and 40s and 50s film director William uh, Wellman, who um, was very mindful of himself about how best or to to tell uh, a story within a story or how best to give any sort of message that he hoped his film viewers might take from his work uh, when he said, if I if I wanted to send a message, I would go to Western Union and not <laughs> and not to his films. Right. So, yeah, mm. It, mm. I, I was I was careful about that. Mm. Um, it, yeah, it's like this subtle way of like bringing your readers on this journey and then sort of leaving them the room to be, you know, the space really to add to it their own experiences. Right. That's right. Uh, to see into my stories, uh, any insights uh, they might have into their own stories and their own lives through my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope I hope that's what happens uh, to readers who you know might pick up the book and and take a look at it. That was my intention. Well, well done, <laughs> well done indeed. Um, I I really want our listeners to know that you know this book is so many things, and at its core, it's a memoir. Did you always intend to write this as a memoir? Oh no! It uh, it, it started out uh, as I explain in the at the end of the book in the acknowledgement section. I uh, tell readers how it started <clears throat> when I was on my way home from uh, Patagonia, the place in southern South America, where I had been working with a close friend of mine, uh, the filmmaker Jimmy Chen. Uh, making a movie about another close friend of mine, Chris Tompkins, who's mm -hmm. also, both of them figure in the book uh, as characters in my stories. And uh, Jimmy's making a film about Chris, who is a world-renowned conservationist. And, and that film, by the way, is going to be coming out later this year. Mm, and nice. we were, Jimmy and I, uh, on the way home uh, in the Santiago Chile airport with a long layover at the airport bar, um, when I started telling him some of my stories, uh, many of the stories, some of the stories, which were in my book, and he just said, whoa, that's incredible. Do you have any photographs? And I said, well, sure, I've got quite a few. And he says, you've got to start an Instagram account. <laughs> well, I did. Be yeah. In fact, by the third beer before we got on the airplane, Jimmy had set up my phone, my own Instagram account on my phone, and I had made a posting from our trip that we'd just done. Nice. <laughs> so I continued to do that. And uh, I got what, you know, young people call followers. <clears throat> uh, and, <laughs> and I was going, wow, there's people following me. And then one of them was my daughter who mm. uh, was following her mother's footsteps at Patagonia as the photo editor. And she said, she said, Pops, she calls me Pops, you've got to turn your Instagram account into a book, write these stories out. My, my kids, your grandkids need them if no, no other reason. So I did that. By the time I got done, I had 50 stories. And I was thinking of publishing them as a book. I talked to uh, Patagonia, the company, Patagonia Books, their imprimatur, uh, and they agreed to publish it. But it turned out to be more of like a doorstop than a book. It was just way too big. <laughs> I doubt that very much, but go on. <laughs> two, of the, two of the stories included another close friend from my uh, early 20s uh, who with me was on a couple of adventures that turned into misadventures when uh, we crossed the authorities and both of us ended up uh, in jail in Panama. Mm -hmm. uh, a horrible experience for both of us. Mm. Uh, and I had written those stories up uh, as two of the 50 but I needed to get her permission to publish them because I tried to, you know, describe them as I did all the stories in the book, you know, with openness, uh, with candor. Uh, and that consequently meant uh, with her permission. <laughs> yeah. So I hadn't seen her for decades. I knew she had been a successful lawyer in Marin County, worked as a district prosecutor's office. Um, and I didn't know that too much more about Candace, kind of lost track of her, but found her again. Uh, again, uh, with my kids' help on Facebook, uh, I didn't know how to do that stuff. But uh, I sent a message to Candace, and I s told her what I'd done, written this book, and I needed uh, her permission to publish the two stories about our both of us being arrested and imprisoned in Panama. And she wrote back and said, well, send them to me. And then she said, 
why don't you send me the whole book? I haven't talked to you for 30 years. I want to read it. Wow. And I was nervous. Yeah. Ner- nervous because I really needed her permission for these two books and, or two stories, excuse me. And I needed, you know, and I was nervous about what she might think about the whole book. Like, what if she didn't like either the stories or the book? What was I going to do? Because I really <laughs> respected her. We were close friends. And, uh, and so I sent her the, the book and she said, give me a couple of weeks. And, and then she got back to me uh, and said, well, I, I like it, you know, kind of. And I went, oh, <laughs> and she said, but, but, t- but tell me, um, who'd you write this book for? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. You know, my friends, my daughter, certainly uh, her kids, my grandkids uh, and anybody interested in adventure, uh, maybe. Um, I don't know. And then she said, well, what do you want them to learn from it? Mm. Uh, and I said, huh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. And she said, well, I think you need to find out and answer that question because you have 50 stories that are all engaging. Uh, they're all interesting, but they're not interconnected except by the people and yourself, of course. And they want to be a memoir, but they're not. Wow. And I said, well, how do I how do I go about that? And she said, "Well, <clears throat> you need to think about where you were when you started in your twenties, and you need to think about where you're at now in your seventies, and you have to see what the through line of your life is." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> and then uh, I thought about it a little more, and I got back to her and I said, "You know, I'm going to take you up on this challenge." and I started spending more time, as I often do every week, that I get a chance hiking in the foothills above my home here in Ojai, California, where I can think best uh, on the trail. And I realized that when I started out in the 20s, in my 20s, in the 60s and 70s, as an adventurer, it was all about the adventures. It Mm. was about the people and my friends who I was having the adventures with. And and certainly it was about the, the places we were having the adventures. But over the decades that followed, uh, in a slow evolutionary shift and change, it became about saving the places where I had the adventures. And I got back to Candace and I said, you know, this is, this is my through line. It's the adventures and the people and the places in the beginning and in the end it's saving the places i had the adventures and she said now take those 50 stories and throw out everything that doesn't have something to do with that through line Mm. and and it took me over a year and a half to do that with her guidance and along the way i said candace you're a lawyer where'd you ever learn yeah (laughs) where'd you ever learn to do this and she said oh i haven't seen you for a few decades i forgot to tell you that I'm also an author's coach, and I have a side business helping people just like you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Now Who how, knew? how lucky can you be yeah. as a writer yeah. to have that kind of guidance from somebody that you respect so much? Absolutely. You know, another thing, Jennifer, you said you, you complimented me on the quality of the writing and I've spent my whole life trying to learn how to do that. So that compliment meant a a lot to me. But um, your listeners might also be interested in in knowing that not only do I really take care with the prose and the construction of the sentences, but I also, as a writer, um, in the final stages of the process, read the book out loud to myself. And I try to do that in a place where nobody else can overhear me so they don't think I've lost it. Right. But, but I stand there and I, I slowly read the, the stories out loud to myself. And in doing that, I inevitably discover flaws in the structure of the writing that could be improved. There's nothing that brings it out more clearly than when you read it aloud, that those, those little Air, no, they're not errors, but they're, they're constructions that could be improved. They just jump out. And then I also have learned in doing that that it reads better not only because there's a flow and a prosody to the sentence and the sentence structures, but it, it's more fulfilling because it connects more deeply 
to some side of us that we all own that's buried way inside our brains that connects to stories read aloud. And when you write them carefully, then they sound different in your mind when you read them. And I'm convinced that they better connect to that nerve that all of us have when we all were around the campfires telling each other our stories back when our lives were pre-industrial. And I hope that by taking great care with writing that I can connect with readers somehow deep inside their brains in a way that less carefully constructed writing doesn't really seem to do. Now, that's my own theory. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but (laughs) just know that I've thought that through, and that's one of the reasons I take as much care as I can with every single word and every single sentence. And it shows. I think it does read like you're, you're telling us a story, and I can hear, I can hear your voice. So that, that oral tradition of storytelling definitely comes through for me. That's great advice to read, read your words aloud. And if you trip out, you trip up on something. You know there's something not right. Yes. Right. It just jumps out. Yeah, yeah. I also read the book aloud for books on tape. and mm, um, Nice. I didn't find anything that didn't, you know, it didn't, I was nervous going into, oh, gosh, did I miss something? Mm-hmm. Is there a sentence in there I should have done better? And Yeah, I did okay. So, <laughs> T- Tell us about the, the moment when you said to yourself, okay, it's done. It's ready. Well, that was dictated uh, by the publisher's uh, deadline. And um, I suppose I share this with most writers uh, that I write best with deadlines. Mm -hmm. Um, And (laughs) uh, so I I had that deadline and uh, there was a uh, a red line uh, date Mm. that um, I had to have every single word locked in. So that was it. When that date arrived, the book was done. <laughs> yeah, not very. I will, not very romantic, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> I was thinking you'd say yes. I, I woke up one morning and I did my final read and realized this is it. Eureka! <laughs> You're absolutely right, though. I mean, when you come up against a deadline, I mean, as a writer myself, I, I find that if I don't have that deadline, I literally can't get myself to go there. And yeah. I think part of it is that we spend that time really thinking about the story. And, you know, I, I always say staring out the window counts. It's, I, I actually got that from my co-founder at the San Diego Writers Festival. And it's true. You know, we spend so much time leading up to actually writing to sit down when we have that deadline and make it happen. But before that, we're... Bah, whatever. Nah. <laughs> staring out the window does not count. It does count. Well, as long as you don't fall asleep. <laughs> You know what, though? I, I get my best ideas on long walks. It used to be runs. Now it's walks. Um, or in the shower. Or in, in very early in the morning when I'm sort of half awake and half asleep. Yeah. No, I'm, I think all writers probably have similar stories. Uh, mm-hmm. I get it best, I think, when I'm walking uh, or hiking. Uh, it's the, the, the metronomic uh, one step, next step, next step that seems to jiggle loose creative ideas for me. Uh, but I think all writers, you know, they have their place uh, early in the morning, late at night, uh, in the shower, on the trail, even driving the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that place that uh, allows anyone to access that creative zone in our brains uh, that you need to in order to write. Yeah. And then, of course, you have to have the discipline to find some rhythm to it that uh, allows you to keep at it. Uh, day after day, week after week, month after month, until, until, it's until, done. until the book's done. I, I always yeah. remember uh, John McPhee, somebody who I learned a lot from in uh, regarding sentence construction and organization of ideas. Uh, but it, McPhee famously said one time that uh, if you put a drop uh, every day into a bucket, pretty soon you have a gallon. Yeah. And that's how it works. That's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I force myself to write 12 minutes every day. And sometimes I write for 12 minutes and sometimes I write for four hours. But by doing that, you stay connected to your story. So that drop in that bucket really matters. It does. Speaking of discipline, I know that you've kept a journal. I think I read that since you were 25 years old, you've kept a journal. That's right. Uh, I have. Can you Uh, talk to us about your journal writing process? 
uh, it uh, had its origins uh, with uh, a literature professor at the university I attended who uh, inspired me to be a writer and also counseled me to uh, be a journalist. Mm -hmm. So I took her up on that. Uh, It took me a few years to get uh, a rhythm to it uh, and to do it regularly um, so that uh, it it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I'd started to to be a regular journalist, uh, and uh, I still am. Uh, so, re- but my definition of regular is uh, one or two or three entries a week. Mm. So I don't have the discipline of doing it every single day, but um, I, I do do it weekly uh, and within a week, usually several times. And another thing I learned, uh, and this was, I think, perhaps by accident and design, was uh, to also record conversations and dialogue. Mm. Uh, as soon after they happened as I could. So if I had a conversation with somebody that, uh, that did resonate with me, that covered some subject that I wanted to memorialize into my journals, I would, as soon as I could, after the conversation recorded in my journals. And I've, I've kept that up, that habit up uh, over my life. And when I sat down to write this memoir, uh, was that ever valuable? Because oh, then it gave me um, the dialogue right in my journals that I could uh, cut and paste into the book uh, and that way, uh, my friends, uh, my comrades, my colleagues, my accomplices and my adventures in the stories uh, developed themselves through the conversations that I knew were accurate because I'd written them down often within minutes of having them uh, through a period of 50 or 60 years of wow. keeping these journals. I can imagine the process of going through all of those journals looking for something specific could have been a little daunting. Well, I actually sat down and started rereading all of them. I hadn't done that my whole life. I would Mm. go back and look at them here and there, depending on subject or topic or person of interest. But then uh, to, uh, especially after Candace's challenge and I, and I (laughs) took my 50 stories and rewrote them into a memoir, I went, I went back and reread those journals and, and what a fascinating experience that was. Uh, Because like all of us, of course, there were so many things that I had forgotten that once I read them again in my journal, uh, that triggered my memory and I could relive uh, all those experiences from uh, my earlier years that otherwise would have been lost to me uh, mm-hmm. and lost to my life. They would have been lost to everything. Uh, yeah. They would have just been, you know, gone. What, what a gift. What an <laughs> yeah. incredible gift. You yeah. gave it to yourself. <laughs> so, you know, if the house catches fire, well, that's what I grabbed first. <laughs> the, I'll the be book, grabbing my the recipes. Book, the bookcase full of journals. <laughs> well, I have a question about your journals. Are are they all like? Do you have a requirement for what that journal must look like in terms of like lined paper, dotted paper, bind, oh, how they're bound? Yeah, back in the day, um, after four or five years of uh, being a journalist, I landed on uh, just two hundred page uh, blank sketchbooks, uh, hardbound mm. sketchbooks, those black ones that you can get in an art supply store. Uh, and that's what I use. Uh, and I've been using the same uh, format, the same journal now since, uh, let me pause and think here. It would have been since the late 70s. Wow. Yeah. I want to take you back to a, a, something that happened. is a pivotal moment in your life when you see the cover of National Geographic. Jim Whitaker is on the cover. And what happens to you in terms of how did this catapult you into your future life? Well, uh, let's remind our listeners that Jim Whitaker was the first American to climb Mount Everest back in 1963 on what was the first American expedition to the -hmm. highest mountain in the world. And uh, what then became only the third time that Everest had been climbed by anyone. And a year later when the expedition uh, was told uh, in a story in National Geographic, I was 14 years old when the magazine came in the mailbox. And when I saw that photograph of Jim Whitaker standing on the summit of Everest, holding his ice axe with the American flag tied to it and the National Geographic banner under that and being whipped in the hurricane winds and his oxygen mask on his face, I, <laughs> it, it, I just connected with it. And I said, I want to be that guy. Mm. Uh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and that's how it started uh, with that. And you literally became that guy. Well, uh, well, I, mean, I, I stuck after it. Um, 
I think that for whatever reason, probably born with some gene that gave me uh, a stick to itiveness, a tenacity to, and, and I might say my mother would have called it a, an obsession. Uh, and, and it probably was some sort of obsessive behavior that I just focused on it. And uh, within a few years uh, after college, uh, shortly after college, I had got, I had achieved enough, I had gained enough mountaineering skills. I was invited to uh, join uh, what became only the second American expedition to ascend Everest. I was in my mid twenties. And then out of that came another invitation two years later uh, to join uh, an American team attempting the first American ascent of K2, hmm. the second highest mountain in the world. And and much more difficult than, than Everest, uh, even though not quite as high. And that expedition was led by none other than Jim <laughs> Whitaker, right. my boyhood hero. So there I was, uh, less than t- you know, about 10 years after seeing that article in the magazine. Uh, in fact, it was just 10 years, exactly 10 years later. There I was on this expedition uh, with my boyhood hero as the leader. And as it turned out, I you know, I, I applied everything I had, as you know, from reading the book uh, into that climb. And, and I got to the top of what then was only the third ascent by ever of K2. As I said, the, of the, of the high, high mountains in the world, uh, now commonly universally regarded as the most difficult of all. And it's a good thing we didn't know that back then. <laughs> it, it, it may have created some sort of mental, you know, sure. block against it, which we didn't have because there was not that much known about the mountain or, or even just how hard it was. Oh, it, it had been climbed twice and it had a reputation of being so, so difficult. And it had turned back so many attempts. This was the sixth time that Americans had tried to climb it, going all the way back to the first attempts in the 1930s. But then a year later, the National Geographic article on our K2 expedition came out, and and there I was <laughs> on the cover, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Climb, climbing up K2. Uh, and then fast forward a few decades to the 1990s, the late 90s, uh, and I become a, a filmmaker and a writer and a, and a photographer, and I've been hired by National Geographic to make a television film of the first big wall climb ever done in Antarctica, the frozen continent. Uh, and the lead climbers uh, on that ascent were uh, the two leading alpinists in the world at the time, Alex Lowe and Conrad mm, Angner. Yeah, yeah. And halfway up this wall, and it was a true wall. I mean, it overhung. It, it had a, awesome. it, it was a little, <laughs> a little beyond vertical. Yeah. At about instead of ninety degrees, it was about a hundred degrees out. It mm-hmm. leaned for two thousand vertical feet. Wow! Uh, it leaned out. Beautiful. <laughs> it, it was this. This just. It only had one ledge the entire way, and and that ledge was about two feet wide. <laughs> and uh, and we were way up this thing when a a storm blew us. You know, forced us off the wall, and we had to rappel down um, to our uh, camp at the base of the spire and. And we were very comfortable in our tents, uh, passing the time, waiting for the storm to blow through. And uh, Conrad, relative, I think. yeah, right, yeah. And Conrad, <laughs> Con- Conrad Anker said, "You know, Rick, uh, there's something I, I, I've really wanted to tell you on this climb, and now's the perfect time to bring it up." And I thought, "Oh God, what did I do wrong?" And he said, uh, "You know, when I was about 13 or 14 years old." Um, my National Geographic came in the mail and it had your story of K2 uh, and you were on the cover and I looked at you on the cover and I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's who I want to be. I want to be that guy. <laughs> and a year later, after that climb, uh, I got my National Geographic in the mail again and there was a cover story about our wall climb in Antarctica, and there was Conrad on the cover of National Geographic. And I, <laughs> I called him up and I said, hey, congrats, cover boy. I just got my magazine. Uh, and then he said, Rick, I think I know what you're going to tell me, but say it anyway. And I said, <laughs> that's right, Conrad. There's a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old girl or boy out there right now 
getting their magazine and seeing you on the cover. <laughs> and, exactly. guess and guess what's <laughs> going to happen. So, so mentorship, um, that's another theme in my book uh, mm. that I try to tell through stories like that that explain how my life unfolded through the influence and leadership of my close friends and colleagues who led my way, showed me my way, uh, gave me the tips and the insights and the, and the passion, the confidence, the inspiration to do what I did. <clears throat> and I hope that through t ex telling those stories, uh, that again, uh, a reader might be able to read into my stories, uh, their own path through life and, and perhaps see how mentors have assisted them. And if they're very young to understand more deeply how important it is for all of us to have those kinds of guides in our lives and to always keep their antenna out for people that could be their mentors and their mm. guides. Yeah. Without telling them that to get back to that earlier topic we had at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. Which is a really good tie-in to, you know, your passion for sustainability and, and social justice and, you know, all the work you do with conservation. And I want to talk a little bit about, you always talk about sustainability in conjunction with social justice. Talk to us about how those two things are connected. Well, there is a, a third leg to that stool, which is uh, environmental protection and conservation is a component of that. So I tend to think of social justice um, as the same as, as one side of the same coin whose other face is uh, environmentalism and environmental protection. So Another way to put it is that one side of the coin is people and the other side of the same coin is planet. And there are two sides of the same coin because they're so intimately interconnected. And <clears throat> I learned that going back to mentorship from uh, two of the main characters in the book, uh, Yvonne Chouinard and, and Doug Tompkins. Uh, and they both taught me uh, how um, many of the social injustices that we suffer in our societies are connected to environmental degradation. Uh, mm. And many, the, the, the pandemic we have uh, right now with COVID is just one of a myriad examples of how uh, environmental degradation, uh, and in this case, uh, the, <clears throat> in the case of, uh, of, of COVID, the uh, exploitation uh, and illegal trade in wildlife, uh, and the environmental degradation that goes with that uh, can so intimately link into a consequence uh, with our societies to create the social injustices that we all live with. <clears throat> so protecting our planet has these enormous consequences and ripple effects out to our societies and the justices and injustices around which our societies are organized. So I, I always think of them as being very interrelated. Um, and again, th these are ideas that some of my teachers have, um, have given uh, to me. But uh, <laughs> the, all of us, I think once we uh, understand more deeply both uh, environmental and social injustices, uh, then we've got to commit to, to doing something about them. And uh, both in you know, my environmentalism and, uh, whatever, and uh, my... Uh, whatever commitments I have as a social activist are, are, are deeply rooted in, in both that awareness and that commitment to do something about it once you have that awareness. Mm. Yeah, here, here. Do, do you think as a society we're starting to price carbon in our carbon footprint in any way? Um, not in, in a way that even comes close to what we have to do. Uh, and pricing carbon is one of the most important policies uh, available to us to address climate change. Uh, mm. You know, ultimately, I think it might be the most important policy we could embrace. And pricing carbon doesn't have to be painful. Right. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's a, a very simple 
uh, mechanism for uh, creating a dividend, ta a carbon tax uh, in our country, in the United States, that um, is dividend-based uh, uh, so that uh, every citizen in the United States would uh, receive um, a dividend from that carbon tax that would be um, progress that would be spread equally across uh, everyone so that you know if you had a carbon tax it was meaningful and that means it has to be priced at 50 or 100 dollars a ton or, or more preferably even closer to 200 dollars a ton and when you start to apply uh, to carbon a, a price at, at that level uh, with today's economy uh, even adjusted for inflation then uh, a dividend tax would give a re a, a, a refund to everyone, a rebate uh, uh, with their uh, income tax return of you know two or three or four thousand dollars per household, mm -hmm. and then see what happens is that the is that the lower income households who don't have three or four cars, uh, and then the ninety nine point nine percent of all of us who don't have our own private jets, um, and those of us who still fly and coach, and and those of us who um, are uh, already probably through our income levels uh, using less carbon would actually make money every year. And uh, the carbon tax is then paid for by the one percenters. So there's some real social justice components that could be worked mm. into a carbon tax like mm. that. Now, I don't think it should be a 100% dividend uh, that also part of it should be carved out to give rebates for um, uh, for uh, technologies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, so that all of us could also enjoy more rebates in our uh, conversions to uh, electric cars, for example, or insulation of uh, home solar on our roofs, things like that. And then, and then think, and, and, and if, if these carbon taxes were uh, applied uh, globally um, with some similarity uh, across uh, economies uh, in all countries of the world, then here's what else would happen. And this is really cool to think about, is that you go into a store, you go into Walmart, and you buy a t-shirt. Uh, and you, you kind of look around at the t-shirts at the uh, that are available, what your choices are. And then there's one that looks kind of cool. It's got the right colors. And it also is the least expensive t-shirt in the whole lineup. Hmm. Not only is it the least expensive t-shirt, but it's also the one that has the lowest footprint on the planet of all the shirts lined up that you could choose from. It's the lowest price and it's the lowest footprint. How did that happen? Well, because the carbon taxes throughout all the countries in the supply chain on the manufacturer of that t-shirt had carbon taxes in place. And the company that made that t-shirt had managed so carefully the carbon intensity of their manufacturing process that they saved money because they had minimized the carbon emissions associated with the manufacture of that t-shirt. And as a consequence, it costs less than all the other t-shirts made by their competitors who weren't as careful and hadn't taken as much care in reducing the carbon emissions of their products as this company had. And that company is being rewarded in the marketplace by the lowest price because it has the lowest footprint. And that is directly what happens if you have a significant carbon tax across all the countries in the world. It, it seems like such a great <laughs> dream, but how in the world is that? There's a lot of moving parts there. Yeah, I mean, is this possible? I mean, we just don't have much time to make it's up these to things us. happen. Yeah. It's up to us. So I mean, here comes the ultimate value of the podcast we're doing right now. Everybody listening to this has to start thinking about carbon taxes and getting into it a little bit more. And y'all, all you out here listening to this become advocates for carbon tax because that's how it's going to happen. Mm. We're all going to have to get behind it because mm -hmm. um, the, we can't depend on the governments to do it. Yeah. We got to, we got to apply the push and pull ourselves. Well, and I have to say from my perspective, sometimes the situation here on planet earth feels pretty bleak. Can can you give us some good news? Didn't we just have it? Did let's we? Do, yeah, let's have some carbon taxes. And, and and it's good news because awareness around things like this is, is increasing. It's going the right direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's going that way because more of us are looking out our window and uh, we're uh, looking at the temperature gauge out there on the, you know, even if it's in the, under the eave in the shadow on the outside of our house, 
it's recording temperatures that we've never, ever seen before. And yeah. all of us are seeing that and all the related um, evidence of climate change. Uh, and, and it's having its effect on, on everyone. Uh, you know, we're, well, not everyone, but, but a growing number of people uh, that is starting to scale quickly enough where I'm actually getting to be optimistic that we might be able to find uh, the solutions and and in time in time to avoid the cliff and the the good news is the solutions are all out there um, the technologies already exist right. to keep the, to keep right. the planet to 1.5 degrees um, you mentioned uh, in my uh, bio uh, some of the uh, conservation and sustainability work I do and the boards I'm on and and one of them is with uh, this group One Earth OneEarth.org. Uh, and uh, our organization, One Earth, uh, is in the business of developing climate change solutions in three areas, scaling renewables, <laughs> scaling uh, the protection of wildlands as nature sink, uh, letting nature go about its business, sequestering carbon, and scaling uh, food and fiber production from industrial practices to regenerative protocols. And, and we have shown how based on the best science done to date, <clears throat> how scaling in those three areas, energy, nature, and food mm. can, can keep the planet to 1.5 degrees without sacrificing uh, the quality of our lives in any way whatsoever. Yeah. You know, you talk about, you know, this idea of this, this price on carbon, right, and products. And I think about Patagonia as a really good example. You know, we buy Patagonia products. Do we buy them because it makes us feel good and we want to be part of a company that's doing great things? Or do we buy them because we really love the products and they last? Well, it's the, the, the number one reason is the former. And the secondary reason is the first. <laughs> so in other words, uh, in our customer surveys, when I was at Patagonia for 15 years, every survey time and again showed that the number one reason people bought our products was because of quality and durability and mm -hmm. longevity. Yeah, uh, and the support we gave to our products to repair and, and them if they're broken, to uh, to um, uh, take them back and and give you credit for something else or give you another product if you weren't using it. We would repair and resell them. That program that I helped develop called Warnware that you cited in my yeah in my in my bio. Uh, and the secondary reason uh, our customers aligned with the brand was uh, its in, its commitment to environmental protection and social justice. But the first thing and foremost thing was that high quality and durability. Um, now let's just take a moment and think about that for a minute because another thing Patagonia has known very well and it's known through its life cycle assessment studies and a lot of money we've spent researching this is that when you own a jacket that lasts five years and then 10 years and it, it can extend out to 20 years because we'll fix it for you if it's broken, if you use that jacket for 10 to 20 years, instead of buying another jacket that doesn't last more than one or two or three years, the environmental footprint of that jacket, even though it may be greater initially because of the quality of materials and construction put into it, has a way lower footprint than the mm. jacket that only lasts a few years. So uh, yeah. the, the foremost uh, environmental commitment around its products that Patagonia makes is durability. Right. That is the foremost thing. It, it trumps everything else. And that is uh, one of the foundational reasons behind the company's commitment to durability and quality. Uh, and also uh, to the price, which is more. It, they're expensive jackets. They don't. But then we also know that uh, over time, uh, they are also a better value if you keep that jacket and use it and reuse it for years and years. That even if initially it costs a little bit more, over its lifetime, it costs way less. Patag it's interesting in Patagonia to look back, you know, you, you, customers don't know this, of course, but having worked there for years, I do, uh, that uh, in times of recession, uh, in hard times, the company always does best. Hmm. that it thrives best when the times are hardest. And I actually did some research and looked into that in the 2009 and 10 recession um, and discovered that uh, it was because there is a cohort of our customers out there in hard times who actually take time to make that value proposition calculation so that they take the time to 
understand the value of investment in a durable product. And mm -hmm. I say investment because that's what investing is. It's uh, buying some investing or buying something that's going to last a long time and pay off. Yeah. And, and, and so in hard times, there's enough of those customers that come out and, uh, and uh, remain loyal to Patagonia's products in hard times that we do really well uh, as a company. Uh, and in fact, that awareness is where that program Warmware came from because um, after the Great Recession, uh, beginning in 2011, we started asking ourselves, well, if there's this small co cohort of people out there that realize the value of durability, uh, the investment value of durability in a, in a consumer good product, then those are our people. Like that's who we want our customers to be. How can we partner with them more deeply than we have uh, to add even more value to their uh, loyalty to our products? And that's where the program came from. With our double down commitment to repair, we have the biggest repair facility in North America, probably the world of any apparel organization. Uh, our commitment to take back, if you're not, if it's lingering in your closet, your jacket and uh, any Patagonia product and, and, or in your garage and you're not really actively using it, we encourage you to bring it back to the company. We'll take it back and give you a credit for another product that you will use. Then we'll take that product back and we'll repair it in our own repair department. We'll um, restore and refurbish and clean it with a, a technology we have that doesn't use any water at all, high pressure CO2 cleaning. Uh, and then we'll resell it on our warmware website. And now the company's even starting to uh, put onto its uh, patagonia.com site uh, that when you do uh, want to buy something at checkout, you might get a little pop-up that says, do you really need to buy this thing? Or, you know, we, 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 got, the, we got this used one that's just as good for half or a third the price. Um, and so we're really trying to walk our talk that way. And yeah. we, we launched Warnware back in 2011 with that now famous full page ad on Black Friday in the New York Times mm -hmm. with the photograph of one of our best-selling jackets and the bold headline above it, don't buy this jacket. Yeah. And we wanted to shock people. We wanted to stop them in their tracks so that they would read the copy where we explained that no matter how hard we had tried to make that jacket with no unnecessary harm to the planet, uh, that it had still uh, taken, uh, released 20 pounds of CO2 gases and it's still taken 80 gallons of water to make it. And it's still left behind two thirds of its own weight in waste. Yeah. That no matter how hard we had tried to make that jacket with no harm. It had still caused harm. And that we all had a responsibility to not buy two or three or five jackets, but just to buy the jacket that we need to use it and reuse it and use it as long as possible. Mm, amen to that. <laughs> Speaking of Yvonne, I'm going to bring you back to the book. There's this one point, I'm pretty sure it's you and Yvonne. You've just stepped out of a private plane and now you have to hitchhike your way to your next destination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Yvonne says, you know, living on the extremes is where you want to be. You just got to be careful about spending too much time in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, you know, Jim Harrison, you know who that is? The, he's a, a well-known novelist who died. I think, gosh, just, I think Jim died just, 18 months ago, two years, very recently, one of my favorite writers of all. And Jim was so good at living on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, he was either in a tent or in the best hotel he could possibly get, or he would force <laughs> his, his publisher to get for him when he was on book tour. And I remember once he said he was in uh, on a book tour and uh, he made the publisher put him up in the Carlisle in New York City. And he had his hunting dogs with him because he'd been out in the field hunting, living in a tent for like a couple of weeks. <laughs> and so uh, he he had the the porter haul his uh, camping gear up to his uh, suite room at the Carlisle Hotel with his two hunting dogs. <laughs> and then he got the dogs in the room and ordered them uh, room service steaks. <laughs> 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 and himself the best bottle of Bordeaux he could he could select from the from the menu and that was Jim always on one end of the spectrum or the other with as least time in the middle as possible I do think there's something about I mean that resonates with me deeply I think Chad and I both 
Um, we love being out in nature and we love also feeling like we're doing something, you know, to protect this natural world and to, to protect our wild places as well so we can enjoy them again. Um, I have to tell you a quick story about me in a Please. similar situation. I'm on my way to Yosemite and I, Chad and I used to have this vehicle called the Chinook, which is a salmon, but it's also a Toyota oh with God. a pop-up camper on the back. And I had this huge box of firewood. We lived in that damn thing for a year. Yeah, we lived in it for a year. But at this point, we actually had a, a, a house we were renting in San Diego. And so my girlfriend and I are driving to Yosemite, but we decided to stop off in San Francisco to go, go to a concert. And we stayed at the Hyatt. So we pull up in front of the, the Grand Hyatt in San Francisco. And we get out and we're wearing, I mean, I look like a dirtbag climber. You know, we just look dirty and my, my pants are ripped and I'm wearing sandals. And the guy comes up, he's got white gloves on and his button down, you know, glossy buttons. And yeah, those are going to get dirty. His, his cap. And he's just kind of looking at me like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I said, well, hold on a minute. I got to get my luggage out. So I get into the back and I pull out this huge thing of wood because we're getting ready to go camping. And I'm like having him help me like with all the wood and <laughs> all these people, this crowd is gathered around and they're like, what is happening? Who are these people? Why are they staying here? And I don't... I always got such a kick out of like being in the valley and being a dirtbag climber and, you know, seeing people who are there to experience the beauty of nature, but are horrified by these dirtbag climbers who appear to be dirty and potentially uneducated. And I, I felt like it was like we were in on the secret and yeah. they didn't get that we were living life in, in such a different way that we we were getting so much more out of it than just staring at the falls or walking around in the valley. And you were. Right. Back in the in the sixties when I started rock climbing, there was this um, this uh, intellectual uh, kind of climber who was a real nerd, but like a lot a lot of climbers were back in those days. And and he went at Camp Four, you know, just sitting around. He he once kind of raised his finger and said, "You know, at both ends of the social spectrum, there lies a leisure class." <laughs> 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 I'll never forget that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you ever know Chongo? Uh, yes, I. You know, I. Uh, uh, that reminds I, me of something Chongo would say. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Speaking of uh, camp for dirt bags, huh? <laughs> oh my God! Absolutely. I've many, many campfire nights spent just listening to him talk about string theory and his big wall book he was writing, and I loved Chongo. Mm -hmm. yeah, Do you know what ever happened to him? I don't. No, I don't actually, either. Yeah, I know he's from San Diego. He once gave me because he found out I was going to San Diego, and his his mom still lived here. And he gave me this huge box full of material that he that was really important to him. And it was like you know scraps of, well, I mean, I mean, Patagonia would appreciate this, and I know Yvonne would. Just you know scraps of material that he thought he could make into something else, and he didn't want to lose it. And he had me transport this big box of loose material back to his mom and <laughs> in, in San Diego. And he's like, "This is really important. Make sure nothing happens to it." <laughs> oh god what what was she like his mom you know um i was only there for a brief moment but she seemed disconnected from yeah. from a lot yeah. she seemed sad and a little lonely if i'm honest yeah well maybe that's why he was in camp four yeah yeah, yeah. hiding in the boulders yeah i want to bring you to a section in the book you know thinking about people from our past Chongo among them and you know you've probably lost more loved ones than I think most people should ever have to endure climbers best friends in your life and and yet I feel like you handle grief with such grace I, I'd like you to read a section from your book if you don't mind it's from the end so I apologize listeners it's not going to give anything away though it, it speaks to something that you do a lot in your book and you do in your talks as well as these maxims for life that make you think, like I said in the beginning, that don't tell you how to think, but give you ideas of ways to think about things. So on page 418, do you mind reading a short segment? I'd be happy to. I don't believe in the idea of closure. It is a misguided response to death. It is healthy to face toward rather than turn away from the gap left by the death of someone you love, even as you face the pain of no longer hearing the voice of the one you loved in your ears while you continue to hear the voice in your mind. 
Love is the truest balm against the pain of the loss of love. Wow. That, I had to read that a couple times, you know, and I think one of the biggest things I fear, of course, is, you know, losing the people I love the most. And I know, and actually yesterday would have been your 40-year anniversary with the love of your life, Jennifer. It was, yeah. And I, I realized that today when we were, getting ready to do this interview and I was like wow I had the pleasure of meeting Jennifer Chad and I both met Jennifer at Patagonia several years ago and she was such a beautiful and is such a beautiful amazing person um I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to meet her when I read that I wonder like do you ever have to go back and read that yourself and remind yourself well no, I, I don't have to. I just remember it so well. I don't have to reread it. Although I must say rereading it just now was um, poignant. Mm. Uh, because, yeah, as you just said yesterday, was our anniversary. Mm. Um, but I, I am reminded of her uh, every day throughout the day, many times a day. Uh, mm. And the memories are... Uh, fun and uh, sometimes uh, poignant and sad and, uh, and, and everything in between. But I embrace all of them. Uh, I had a, a very poignant one yesterday on, on our anniversary when I was at uh, the house we both shared for nearly all of those 40 years, uh, which is now I put it up for sale and I was back cleaning up a few things yesterday for the realtor and I was with my little five-year-old grandson and uh, walking down the driveway with the little boy to get the garbage bins off the street and take them back up. And uh, as I was walking down the driveway with him, uh, my mind returned to uh, the day two and a half years ago when I carried my wife's body uh, out of the house and loaded it into a hearse and watched it drive down that same driveway to the street and, and disappear forever. And I had to just stand there with the little boy and uh, he didn't know what was going through my mind, of course. And, and then I held his hand and, and walked down the driveway and, and I was good. I was whole and I was on my own path, my new path and uh, listening to the birds uh, and mm. feeling the privilege of being there with my grandson. So those things happen to me all the time. And I don't turn away from it at all. As I just said in that part of the book I read to you and your listeners, Jennifer, that we, we would all be wise to uh, face towards rather than away from our losses. Yeah. Sometimes people ask me, well, you know, of all the things you've experienced in your life outdoors and in nature and the wild, that you say you've learned all these lessons, many that you've taken from the high places back home to sea level and apply it to your life, uh, your daily life, as it were. What's the most important? And that's taken a long time to think through. But I think my answer is uh, the awareness that... Uh, that we have no life without death, that all life is predicated by death, and that death is just the other end of life, and life is the other end of death. And without the two, without death, we would never have life. Right. And yeah. to understand that deeply, as you do when you spend time in nature, in the wildness, when you see the violence in nature, uh, you see the way in which all life that lives close to nature has to live daily with the death. Mm -hmm. You get that into your bones, uh, then uh, it can have more beauty. It can be lighter than it is dark. Uh, and you can live your life uh, with the awareness of the light side of death. Yeah. Uh, and when you do that and you understand it and you integrate it uh, and you embrace it, 
it results in a resiliency against loss uh, that is stronger than any other uh, source you can have as a way of accommodating that loss uh, and those setbacks that we all have in our lives. All of us have and will have. Uh, even resilience to what I consider kind of like minor things. And please don't take offense, you or the listeners, when I say that to me, the pandemic that we're all suffering through is like a road bump. If you consider it in this larger context that I'm describing to all of you right now, uh, and if you consider and you can actually put into context something like the pandemic uh, into the wider way that nature really works, uh, then you have a resilience that allows you to endure something like the pandemic uh, with much better acceptance uh, and with an avoidance of anxiety that otherwise you're going to be all of us feeling. So um, it's so valuable to be able to do that. And, and I think that's the most important thing I've taken from nature and apply back to my life. But now let me be honest. That doesn't mean that I don't have to work continually to accept the inevitability of my own death and the death of those I love. But, but I, but I work at it all the time and, it, and it's a pra work at it in the sense of a, of a Buddhist or even a yogic practice that it's mm -hmm. a, that, it, that you have to practice your own mortality. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, uh, that you have to learn to accept and live with your death. And, and that's, and that takes a lot of work and practice. Uh, and then when the moment comes, I found that uh, even, even with that practice, when the moment actually arrives, it is brutally difficult to let the practice rise to the top. And that's, in my story at the end of the book, as you know, from when I was in the kayak with Doug Tompkins and yeah. uh, the famed conservationist, when our boat overturned and we both were plunged into cold water yeah. and we both had to look at each other and know that we very likely were looking at each other as two dead men. Yeah. And in fact, uh, by the time I got ashore, I was unconscious uh, near death. And by the time he got ashore, Doug was dead. Yeah. And in the first moments of that awareness, uh, I couldn't accept it. Uh, but then I did. Uh, as I faded uh, out and lost consciousness, uh, it was with acceptance. And I managed to pull that off. So, um, you know, we can, all, we can all do it if we practice that. I think we're all capable of more than we realize or give ourselves credit for. Yeah. <laughs> I want to end with something that I think is um, a really beautiful way for people to look at life and the choices they make. Um, speaking of Buddhism and how we approach life and your friend Jonathan, who you lost early on in the book, you thought about leaving mountaineering for good because it was too risky. And you were having this conversation with Jennifer at the time and you said, I don't know, it's, it's so risky. I don't know if I want to go back to it. And she said to you, it's more risky to not stay true to who you are. Yeah, and I think I say in the book, and if not in the book, I've said it to my friends many times that that's when I learned that one plus one in a marriage can be a lot more than two. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, she, she, was, uh, she was my main guide in life. Yeah. And... Uh, and we made it work, but boy, was it hard. But then, mm. of course, marriages are hard, and it takes a lot of work. And uh, they're, um, and, and it's always imperfect. <laughs> uh, and it's always uh, something that you have to apply yourself to all the time. And, uh, and we did. We, we learned to, 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 to work out all the challenges of having me go back to that life uh, of adventure and uh, both as vocation and avocation uh, to live um, my life uh, uh, embracing who I was and who I wanted to be uh, just as she did 
even as we both had to compromise, even as we both had to make sacrifices and we both had to work together. And as I say in the book, on that topic of sacrifices, um, she's the one that gets the credit with the mm-hmm. two full-time jobs of raising our kids and her position at Patagonia. An incredible woman. Yeah. She left a beautiful mark on this planet and mm-hmm. everyone around her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Rick, thank you so much for being here with us, for well, writing this book. Yeah, my pleasure. This has been a great conversation, uh, Jennifer and Chad. So uh, my thanks goes to you guys as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we appreciate you. Dear listener, you can learn more about Rick Ridgway at rickridgway.com. You can follow him on Instagram for all those wonderful pictures we talked about earlier at Rick Ridgway. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey folks, this is Jennifer, and as you know, The Premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers' Festival, which, by the way, is happening this October, October 8th, in fact, 2022. It's going Live and in person. Yeah, live and in person. I'm really, really excited. We, um, We have so many exciting things happening, so many exciting speakers. They're coming in from all over, and we want you to be there. So Coronado Public Library, the fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival. SanDiegoWritersFestival.com. You can subscribe to learn more about our programming and get on the list to win free books and all kinds of cool stuff happening. So SanDiegoWritersFestival.com. Sure. <laughs>